Good morning. As I get my notes open here, um, it's good to see everybody this morning. Certainly, beautiful day we have outside, and always a great day to worship God together. This week, I've had the pleasure, really three times in my life, I've had the pleasure of uh, witnessing the birth of my children, to be there in the room. And admittedly, the first time, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, the sudden realization that you'll never sleep again. After number three, I kind of feel like I've got this. But uh, I appreciate your prayers for Jennifer through her pregnancy and your continued prayers for us as we go forward with three little girls. Um, certainly prayers for their future boyfriends. <laughs> Dealing with that realization as well. Got a few years, thankfully. A few weeks ago when I preached... Um, I talked about Satan, how he operates, how he works, what he does, and since then I've had a few additional thoughts. Um, one of the things that we talked about was that Satan isn't subtle. He doesn't have to be. Quite literally, there's a town with the nickname Sin City. It, it didn't just give itself that name, it kind of earned it. And millions flock there pretty much daily. And that's just one example. It doesn't even have to be that so much as it could be anything. Pick your temptation, pick your poison. He doesn't have to be subtle. And he doesn't have to be subtle out there. In fact, he doesn't even have to try outside on people who aren't Christians because, quite frankly, he's already got them. It doesn't matter. I started thinking harder about the influence uh, he has on us. This morning we talked about in class the light and the paths and the shadows. And, and when we're walking on a path, it's easier to walk in the light than it is in the dark because you can see where you're going. So how does Satan, how does sin, how does temptation work on people who are trying to walk in the light so that they can see where they are going? Because people who are walking in the light, Christians who are walking in the light, the kind of Christian we should be, we're actively trying to not stumble and fall. And I say that as I stand practically on the edge of this platform in front, literally with my toes hanging off. We try actively to not stumble and fall, okay? That's the whole purpose of walking in the light, to see the problems. Now, I enjoy a moonlight stroll on the beach as much as the next guy. But in reality, we are trying to avoid pitfalls, troubles, problems, and the kind of things and people that prey on us in the dark. So how does he get us? How does somebody who's trying to walk so in the light, who's trying to be completely aware of their surroundings, how does he still win? That was the question I was trying to answer. The scripture gives us the answer. And the title of the sermon, if you want to give it a title, and I apologize, I don't have a PowerPoint. I didn't get that far in my preparations. Is wolves in sheep's clothing. He gets to us by getting to us here, by getting to us in these pews, by getting to us with the people that we love and care about sitting next to us. And I'm not saying this to make people paranoid. I'm not saying this to make you anxious about the person that is sitting next to you in the pew. Not at all. And before I go too far down the path of wolves in sheep's clothing, I want to set a precedent for us. I want to set the stage. I believe he gets to us one of two ways. He pretends to be a sheep, 
or he influences a good person into being a wolf. Everybody follow me? So how do you spot it? And let's look at a herd of sheep for just a moment. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a wolf in real life. I've only ever seen one at the zoo personally in real life, but they're not terribly large creatures overall. They're very thin. Even if they are big, a lot of times sheep are bigger. So wolves don't attack from the outside because that would cause all of the sheep in front of them to scatter away. They get down real low. They go through a whole herd. They find the weakest one in the middle, and they start there, and they work their way out. And a lot of times the shepherd doesn't necessarily see the wolf because he's so low to the ground, because he's deliberately trying to not be seen, and because the sheep are oblivious. And then once it happens, once the attack starts, all that, that sheep, the sheep immediately around it, all of the others scatter. So keep that image in your mind when we're talking about what we're talking about. I want to set a precedent about the church, though. In order for what I'm, the rest of what I'm going to say to make sense, I need to back up. The church, each congregation, each flock, is autonomous. If you don't know what autonomous means, it means they are individual. Okay? Everything I'm going to say today, I'm going to back up with scripture. So if you have a pen, there's going to be a lot of it. You may want to make notes and go back to it later. The work of each congregation is autonomous. We see this in scripture several times pointed out, but I want to draw it to our attention because it's easy for me to say that and it's easy for us to think that, but it's important we look at a few things. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Here, Peter's writing a letter addressing to the congregation. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. This is being written to a church, and he's calling that congregation a flock, and he's referring to the elders as shepherds. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Turn back to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So every church is individual, a flock, with shepherds appointed to oversee said flock. Now, all of the sheep at the different, at the different flocks, they're still sheep. That doesn't change. If we're keeping with the animal analogy here, they're not different species, they're still sheep. But if we had, a sh if we had 
shepherd and flock over here in town A, and we had a shepherd and a flock over here in town B, shepherd A is not responsible for the sheep in town B. However, should town B shepherd need shepherd A to help, he can, but they are individual with their own responsibilities. A is responsible for the sheep over here, to keep them, watch over them, protect them, to watch for wolves, and to look for stragglers. Shepherd B, the same. Can they help each other? Absolutely, but they are individual. They have their own responsibilities, they have their own needs, they have their own sheep, they have their own people, they have what they need in front of them. And trust me when I say, my father is an elder, believe me when I say, what's in front of them is enough work to last a lifetime. And I know there are men in this room who at different times have served as deacons and elders. You know the congregation in front of you is enough to last you a lifetime. And there is work and constant guarding that you don't need to be worried about the sheep over here in town A. They have their own responsibilities. To that point, and this is all going to come together and make sense because I know it seems like I'm getting way off track. I'm on a path, I promise. To that point, the congregation was designed by God to operate with elders. If you don't understand why, if you don't agree with why, we're going to go to scripture in a moment, but I want you to think about it like this. Last week there were 43 people here. Now, it's about 54 of you, give or take. Just a quick scan of the room. Can you get 54 people in a room with their own thoughts, opinions, ideas, and things of how they think it should be done and get them all to agree? No. Especially on minutia. Big, big decisions, like for example, if we were talking about we need, we're going to build a new building, that affects everybody. That is a decision that everybody should have a little bit of input on, okay? Just as an example. I've been a part of that process at one point in my life. You, you get ideas and opinions and you work with different people to, to figure out the best way logistically to make that happen. But the minutia, the small things, you're not gonna get 50 people in a room to agree on one thing. The whole idea was to have a small group of people to oversee the large, to take care. But here's the thing, without elders, we are without shepherds and elders, we are asking the flock to shepherd themselves. We're putting the responsibility back on the sheep to look for the wolves. And no offense to anybody in here, don't take offense to what I'm saying. If we're looking at sheep as an animal, they're oblivious. They don't start bleeding for help until the problem has already happened. The shepherd exists for a reason. So let's look at that for a second. I'm not going to go into today the qualifications for an elder. First, uh, Titus chapter 5, if you are Titus 1, excuse me, Titus 1, 5 through 9, if you want to read the qualifications for an elder, or if you want to discuss that with me privately, we can discuss that. Point is, there are qualifications for the elder and the elder's wife. But, let's look at 1 Peter 5. We're going to go back to, go back to 1 Peter. We're going to look at this verse again. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. That last sentence is interesting to me. 
you look at the qualifications for an elder, one of them is that he desires the position of an elder. You could meet every other qualification on the list. Be sober-minded, have a wife that is above reproach, be yourself above reproach, not quick to anger. You can go down the list. And if you meet all of those checkpoints and you don't desire the position, guess what? You are not qualified to be an elder. That is a qualification. And here he's telling these elders to be shepherds of God's flock, take this responsibility, and want to do it. So, what do we do in a congregation like ours where we don't have elders? There is biblical precedent of a congregation that operated for a time without elders, okay? And this one slipped under my radar for years, and it wasn't until I started delving into this particular sermon that it even occurred to me. We have example of that in Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. And the city here is Antioch, which is a city inside of Syria. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The congregations already existed when Paul and Barnabas showed up later to appoint elders. But this goes back to my point. The church was not designed for long to operate without elders. And even in this instance, the congregation was allowed to, and they were considered strong and faithful brethren, but they still appointed elders because it makes the work of the congregation easier when you're not trying to get the opinions of an entire room together to figure out how to solve every little thing. Now, we use men's meetings here as an expediency. Men who represent the different families that have chosen to work with the flock here. And you get it seven or eight or ten of us or however many there may be at that particular meeting. Sometimes four, depending on who's here in time of year. And we make a decision together. And if we had elders, that would be what they do. You get a few of them together to make a decision that benefits the whole, that represents what the congregation is trying to do. So I've set the stage. This is where it all makes sense. The church was designed to be individual and to be its own flock. That flock was designed to have a shepherd. Take out the shepherd, the flock is just a bunch of sheep in a room. All trying to figure out the direction they need to go with no leadership, no direction. Elders also look out for the well-being of the individual members. I don't know if you realize that or if you've ever been an elder. They put a lot of thought and effort into how the different people who are in that building affect each other. They're like managers. Really, if we're putting it in a modern-day term, it's a business structure. You have managers, sub-managers, everyone else. And their whole job is to oversee the well-being of everyone. It's funny how the things that we use day to day in our lives reflect the design God put in place for us. The whole management structure really is just a reflection of the idea God had for the church. So 
So, I could go on and on about elders and deacons and responsibilities of the church. Because of our situation here, we need to be the ones looking out for the wolves. We should really be doing that anyway. But now we need to look out for each other. It's so easy to sit here and feel like, well, the wolves aren't going to get me today. Well, maybe you don't realize that brother sister down the end of the pew is having a really rough time, and the wolves are getting to them. Maybe they're not strong enough. Maybe that's you sitting here right now. When we don't have people to look out for us as a whole in the direction we want to go, it falls on us to look out for each other. And that's also one of the things I do love about a small congregation. I grew up in a congregation of 200 plus, pushing 300 at the time that I moved. It's a lot of people. Six elders, nine deacons to oversee the entire congregation. It's a lot of people. And I'll be honest with you, I worshiped with people for years and I never even got to know their name because they were gone as soon as the invitation song hit up and I never even got to really talk to them. Saw them every Sunday. So many people. The benefit that we have here, the strength that we have here, is that we are not a huge flock. And should the time come that we become a massive flock, and I pray that we do, I hope at that time we will look at very seriously at appointing elders to watch over us because it's so much harder. Think about what I just asked you to do. I just asked you to think about not just your well-being, but the well-being of every other person in this room. That's a lot. And you, and you, and you, and me, and you, and every single one of us to watch out for each other constantly. So when we're looking for the wolves, when we're looking for that, what are we looking for? Believe it or not, Satan still isn't all that subtle. We just have to look for what he's doing. Matthew chapter 7 makes it very clear. Verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Seems kind of like an obvious statement, but it's true. You ever seen a diseased tree put out a good piece of fruit? Doesn't happen. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, lest by their fruit you will recognize them. I want to make sure I word this properly. When we read this, and maybe you're anyth if you're anything like me, you've thought this. We feel like it's God's job because uh, the Bible talks about fire and hellfire and damnation in the afterlife so much. We feel like it's God's job to cut down the tree and throw it into the fire and that that's what's going to happen on judgment day and that's true. But if we were to stick with the analogy he's making here, if we believe that Jesus is going to come back one day and the world's going to be destroyed, do we wait until then to remove the bad fruit tree that's in front of us? Do we wait until kingdom come to remove the poisoned tree? No. When we realize it's bad, we remove it now. We don't wait. Because Jesus may come in our lifetime. He may come a hundred lifetimes from now. 
And if we take this attitude of God is going, it's, if we're just waiting for judgment day when all of that's going to happen, believe me, it'll get their own. But in the here and the now, in the moment where we live, our life becomes infinitely harder if we are full, an orchard full of poisoned fruit. It falls on us. And if we had elders, it would fall on them to look for the damaged tree. And maybe a tree isn't bad outright. No tree, I don't think any tree really starts off. I'm not a fan of analogies, so this is a bit of a struggle for me to keep. Every, my wife uses them all the time and it drives me nuts. A tree may not be bad from the start. It grew up big and strong, capable of producing fruit at some point. And somewhere along the way, it picked up a problem that never got corrected. And it grew. And it spread and infected the whole tree. There's a, um, this is going to sound weird, there, there's a fungus that affects palm trees. Now you know, I use this because it affects us here in Florida. Um, I forget the name of it offhand, but it grows like a mushroom on the side of a palm tree. And if you see it, that palm tree is dead and doesn't even know it. And if you remove that palm tree, you can never plant another palm tree in that spot. So you can plant other things, but it, it goes down into the soil. And that whole area of soil is contaminated. And you have to remove a massive section about six feet down and about eight by eight wide to completely remove the contaminated soil that is there. You can never plant in that spot again. And this is a fungus that just grows on the side of it and very slowly kills the tree. And if you were to look at the palm tree, you'll see it looks just fine. It doesn't look sick. It's dead and doesn't even know it. So when we talk about people who may not necessarily be intending to be wolves in sheep's clothing, but they've begun down a certain path, they could be influencing us in negative ways that we never even realized that they even realize. How is that for a scary thought? You might be a wolf and don't know it. That's terrifying. The scripture has made clear what we're to do. We're to look at it. If the damaged tree can't be repaired, if it's too far gone, or if it's causing problems and affecting the trees around it, we cut it down and we remove it. And the scripture has given us authority to, to pull it back into what we do as a congregation. The scripture has given us the authority to remove and withdraw from individuals. To remove and withdraw from individuals who are causing problems in our congregation. Who are poisoning or attacking our flock. Kevin posted a great article in last week's bulletin. And I wasn't here, and he sent it to me, and I, I appreciate him doing that. About, do we ex are we to accept every single person who walks through that door, claiming to be a Christian, as a part of the flock, without any question? Well, the Christian logic in us and in the world says, yes, love everybody. Don't challenge anybody. Don't question it. Be woke. Be aware. But don't, 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 don't tell anybody that they're wrong acceptance. 
I drive by a congregation on my way to work, uh, some I don't, denominational church, they have a sign, come as you are, all are accepted. That is dangerous. That is scary. There was a shooting in Texas a few weeks ago inside of a church. There, believe it or not, are people who come into here to harm us. And we're constantly worried about, I'll be honest, if you ever notice, I sit sideways in the pew. It's because I'm paranoid and I can keep one eye on the door. There's a reason I do that. And maybe it's my own fault that maybe I'm not, that that's on my mind and that's something that I can't help but kind of focus on. But we live in a world where, guess what, reality is people want to come in here and break this up. People want to stop this. People will picket us. People will accuse us. People will physically attack us. And with somehow, and all of that, we manage to miss the underlying wolf that's tearing us from within. We're so worried about who's going to come through that door to hurt us. Or who's going to attack us when we're out that door. We stop looking at ourselves, and we stop looking at the person that's in the pew with us. Shortly after the conversion of Paul, when everybody still knew him as Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Christian killer, kind of had a reputation. He's the Jew of Jews. Calls himself, uh, what, was the, what was the term he used? Um, Pharisee of Pharisees. Killed Christians, I believe, by the thousands. He converts. Well, everybody kind of knows who he is. So in Acts chapter 9, just a shortly timeline events after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul is attempting to worship with the brethren in Jerusalem, same town where he kind of made a name for himself killing Christians, and the church rejected him. Let's look at that account real quick, because it makes an important distinction. I know I'm running longer than my sermons tend to. I apologize. <laughs> Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, I want to give kudos to the church at Jerusalem. They're paying attention. Okay? Think of a, think of a horrible human being. Let's, I'm going to pick somebody who's long dead that none of us ever met, Hitler. We'll just use Hitler because it works. Let's say Hitler claimed to be a reformed Christian and came walking through the door. How many of us are going to take super kindly to him, knowing what he has done, led, and was capable of? Okay? This is, that's the gravity of man we're talking that Paul was. So everybody knew him. So kudos to the congregation in Jerusalem for looking out and questioning what's happening here. And it took Barnabas, we go on to read, Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on the road how he had seen the Lord and who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So now a, a respected Christian has come before the church in Jerusalem and said, I understand what's happening. And I think Paul even understood what was happening because he went to Barnabas. Barnabas found out about it. And Barnabas said, come with me, I'll vouch for you. There is nothing wrong with that. We need to be very focused about what is happening in this building. And Paul went on and was working with them for years at the church in Jerusalem. If you look at verse 28, we look at Diotrephes. Diotrephes in 3 John. 
I'm not gonna go into the whole account, the short version is, Diotrephes was a false teacher, he was a false Christian. He was somebody who put on the pomp and the circumstance and showed up every single morning and was there with, with the congregation and worked with them there and preached and spoke and everything and was a huge hypocrite. And everybody knew it. Ultimately, Diotrephes was removed from the congregation. But he was the perfect example of a wolf in sheep's clothing because he was among them and until the events of Diotrephes were exposed, nobody had a clue. And I apologize that I am so passionate about this, but I speak from experience when I have seen good men and good women and brothers and family corrupted, and I have seen it rip a church in half, literally divide a congregation. That congregation is now no longer sound, and the 12 members that left that congregation were scattered. I have watched it happen. <laughs> and spend long enough in the church and long enough at different churches, you see it. So I apologize for my passion in this. It's real. I worry about that here. I worry about that not because I'm paranoid of all of you. <laughs> it's not paranoia. I worry about that because we are working so hard. And it's hard enough being a Christian. And it's hard enough being in this world. And it's hard enough being out there. It's hard enough and scary enough walking out that door. I can walk out that door, walk 500 feet, and there's a bar. It's not like I have to go terribly far to fall back into old vices. This should be the one place we feel safe and secure. When a flock stays together, they feel safe and secure because they know they are being watched. They know they are being protected. And we are in a position where we have to monitor and protect ourselves. Titus chapter 3 talks about rejecting the divisive man. If you want to read the scripture that talks about withdrawing and removing those from among you, I don't want to go into it right now. Titus chapter 3. There's your homework. The scripture is for all. I want to say that there is a part of me that every single person who walks through that door I'm able to greet with love and respect and understanding regardless of your walk of life. I believe everyone should have the opportunity to hear the gospel. But we can't be naive that when those who want to work among the flock here, we need to be watching out for each other. And that's not paranoia, that's love. That falls on us. That falls to the congregation at Cortez. And it is not the congregation's Palmetto's responsibility to correct us. It is not the responsibility of the other congregation here in Bradenton that's four miles away. It is not their responsibility to watch over and protect us and to watch out for the wolves. It is ours. We're the ones who are here. We're the ones who have made a commitment and a dedication to worship God. It falls on us to watch out for the congregation that works here or else all of these prayers and all of these things that we talk about wanting the congregation here to grow and our influence in the community will be for nothing. and We will never succeed. When I moved to Florida, I chose this congregation not because it was convenient to me, but because you were a family. And I was immediately welcomed as family. And working with you for the last five years has been great. We can't lose that. I want to close by looking at the scripture that we started with during the reading. Romans 1.
verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We want the work here to continue to grow. And if you're visiting with us, that means that we're having some measure of success in that. You found out about us, and here you are. And welcome. The work grows when the congregation is healthy. The work grows when the congregation is looking out for each other. Because believe me, there's a whole lot more of them than there is of us. But we also need to look at ourselves in the mirror and decide, are we bad fruit? Because at the end of the day, I don't see everybody's personal lives and you don't see mine. At the end of the day, the only person who really knows if you're a wolf in sheep's clothing is you. And if a brother or a sister ever comes to you and says, brother, I'm concerned, sister, I'm concerned. Number one, they need to be doing it out of love. And number two, we need to receive that. I would hope if one of you saw me ruining my life, that one of you would come to me. And I may not necessarily receive it, I've got a bit of a temper, but I would hope that the effort would be made up for my sake. If you haven't become part of the gospel, if you haven't chosen to obey God, this is, can you some way to stab it? If you haven't chosen to believe the gospel, if you haven't chosen to become a flock and become part of the fold and worship God and, and live your life as a Christian, then everything I've just said is meaningless to you. And that hope and eternity that we talked about is not yours. And if we're the wolf in sheep's clothing, and if we're the bad fruit, guess what? That eternity that we talked about isn't ours either. So with love and compassion, I plead with you to make your lives right. If you're not a Christian, read the gospel, believe and be baptized, Acts 2.38, Mark 16.16, the confession of faith that leads to baptism. And if you're, the, if you're the tree putting out bad fruit, get some help before you become the problem that poisons the rest of the orchard. If you're subject to the invitation, Please come forward as we stand and sing.